Thank you all very much for inviting me here. I still don't know who to blame or thank, uh, but uh, here I am. And uh, the introduction basically says it all. I, um, I do general dermatology. I've had an interest in uh, dairy and food and acne uh, since early on, and uh, I think we'll just get right to it. Uh, the acne and milk story goes way back. Uh, oh, I should first of all thank my, uh, my sort of sponsoring university. You may not be aware that Theodore Seuss Geisel gave a lot of money to what used to be Dartmouth Medical School, and it's now the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. So I consider myself an, an assistant uh, professor of surgery, not an assistant professor, because Dr. Seuss is now sponsoring me. Acne starts with hormones. The acne genesis begins with hormonal influences, and these are they. They are numerous, and without the hormonal influences, you simply get no acne. We're going to go through not all of these today because it will distract me from the main menu, but we'll go through selected parts of this. The most important thing probably is modulating the androgen receptor, and we'll talk about reducing intake, which is your interface with patients. This is a baby's nose. When babies are born, they are coated with vernix caseosa. Vernix is the thing that makes babies slippery. It also uh, keeps them from uh, getting overhydrated in the amniotic fluid. Uh, if you didn't have sebum lubricating your entry into the world, uh, women would probably have to have wider hips because this is what allows the baby to slip out uh, without getting stuck on the way. And if you look at newborns, not all of them have as greasy noses as this one, but uh, most do. The human placenta actually makes 300 milligrams of progesterone daily. If you consider that uh, 100 milligrams of progesterone is enough for an adult woman for endometrial support during hormone replacement therapy, a uh, young babe is getting 300 milligrams daily. Now, vernix is really important because uh, it's it's, it is the beginning of the whole acne story. If you go further on along in life, we get to the comedo. The comedo, and that's the proper singular. It's not comedone, it's comedo. Uh, and you have to ask yourself, how does a healthy and well-vascularized teenage face become covered with hundreds of tiny pores that are so anoxic that they support P. acnes? You all know that P. acnes is an anaerobe, uh, and we have to assume that uh, they are growing because they're in an anaerobic environment. And I'll show you more of that in a second. May I have that uh, video, please, the internet one? How many of you actually went on the internet and saw this animation? Hands up. Not a one. Okay, I'm glad we arranged to have this. Okay, um, this is a representation of fetal skin. Uh, click. This is how it grows, click. It gets bigger as time goes on during the fetal life, click. And there's the nose again at about the time when you have a good sized uh, uh, sebaceous gland just prior to delivery, click. Uh, these hair and follicle and sebaceous units all grow at different rates depending on where in the body they are, click. They can be really big, huge uh, sebaceous glands with little wee tiny hairs, and that's basically what you have in acne. Next. Yeah, or they can be just little fine hairs like on a lady's face. Next. 
or they can be big, deep hairs in the beard. Next. And uh, we can go on to the next one. They can really get big under hormonal influence during the teen years. Next. If you take a cross-section through here uh, and just click, this area is held together by a web of collagen wrapped around the follicular portion of the folliculopilosebaceous unit. Next. If you look down inside this, you'll see uh, a layer of basal cells on the outside. Then you have the, the cells that are keratinocytes heading towards the middle. There's a hair in the middle. And there's a loose fabric of desquamating uh, skin cells, or actually lining cells within the duct. Next. If you, uh, let's do next. And next. If you watch what happens as this gradually expands, the pressure builds against the outside of the lining of the duct, and you get compression in the center. And it's the compression in the center that actually causes the anoxia. And that's why P. acnes increases in population during uh, the development of acne. That's also what causes pressure out here, which in some areas can gradually cause splitting and leaking and you have antigen that leaks out of here into the underlying dermis, and that's what gives you the inflammatory reaction. Next. And next. This is what keratinocytes look like if they are so compressed that they can no longer metabolize the lipids that are normally in here uh, in order to provide energy for what's called terminal differentiation. Terminal differentiation is what happens to leaves in the, in the autumn. Leaves don't just fall off because the wind blows in the autumn. They fall off because there's an active process that separates them from the stem. And normally your keratinocytes are actively separated from your skin cells by a process of terminal differentiation. The same thing happens in the duct. If you have a situation where the duct is, going, is overproducing, under influence of hormones, these terminal differentiation processes do not complete. So you wind up with not cells getting sticky, but cells that are failing to become unstuck. See, keratinocytes are born sticky. They stick to each other. But later on, if they do go through terminal differentiation, they become unstuck, they flake off, they go up the duct, they're lost forever, and that's the end of the story. But if they don't differentiate, they get stuck, and that is what a comodo is. Uh, next. So just uh, hit the end button there and we'll watch the, watch this expand. Uh, maybe it's not going to. No, let's, let's just go back to the main lecture, please and thanks. That is available to you and as a teaching uh, mechanism for your patients. You can get it at acnemilk.com. Just go to the animation, click on it, and you can paste your way through it. There are little explanatory notes at the bottom. Uh, you roll your cursor over it, and it'll, it'll teach, your, teach your patients uh, what it's all about. It'll also teach you some things that you may not have learned in PA school. Next. Oh, sorry, me. No hormones, no sebum. No hormones, no keratinocytes. If there's no sebum, there's no seborrhea. And if there are no keratinocytes, there's no microcomodo. So what we have to look at is all the things that turn this process on. There are endogenous hormones and there are exogenous hormones. 
among the endogenous ones, the steroids, you know about reproductive hormones, you all, ladies are all aware, hormones go up and down with periods, acne goes up and down with periods. The adrenal hormones, stress. You all know about stress and acne. Polypeptides are also part of the deal. Polypeptides are things like growth hormone that uh, turn on IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, and insulin, and corticotrophin-releasing hormone, which you may have learned is corticotrophin-releasing factor. The, the name's sort of morphing over the years. There are a number of others, and I'll show you those later. Then there are the exogenous hormones, the steroidal ones, OCs, birth control pills, medroxyprogesterone uh, acetate, which is the Depo-Provera uh, material, the hormone in the marina, hormones in implants, all of the contraceptives have pro and con effects on acne. Dairy also uh, is included in the exogenous. The alpha-reduced reproductive hormones, which I'll show you in a minute, uh, and there are a number of polypeptides in uh, the exogenous products, or exogenous things as well, growth hormone in particular, in the casein in dairy. Also in the whey in dairy, you get things that turn on insulin and uh, high glycemic loads turn on insulin as well. So how's all this coming together? I'm getting there. There are, by the way, some additional progestin sources that aren't well recognized. There's one that comes from the ovaries called 5-alpha-pregnane dione, which is present in cow milk, but it also comes out as part of the progesterone peak with every cycle. Uh, and this is an important one because it's also involved with breast cancer. Men and women differ somewhat. Uh, I don't know who Millie Levy was, but uh, she had a great imagination and uh, she put together this art piece, which pretty much explains the difficulty in sorting out the ladies from the gents when it comes to the hormones. Here, again, are, is the format we're looking at. Right now, I'm gonna look at adrenal androgens, and in particular, uh, what happened in the past few years, about four years ago, a group in Europe found that CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone, has actual receptors in the folliculopilosebaceous unit. There's CRH receptor one and CRH receptor two, and CRH no longer has to go through this whole cycle here to produce a stimulus of the sebaceous glands and the sebaceous follicles. There is now a direct path. Indeed, under some unknown uh, stimulus, um, the folliculopilosebaceous units themselves can actually make CRH even though it is normally coming from the hypothalamus. The important thing here is that if you turn on this area here, if you turn on the sebaceous gland, you get seborrhea. If you turn on the sebaceous follicles, you get follicular hyperkeratosis. This is where the terminal differentiation stops, and that is what gives you acne. So back to the OCs and the VCPs and the marina. You're probably aware that the Various progestins have various degrees of androgenicity. The best one is drospirinone, and this is why Yaz and Yasmin and all those generics out there work so well. Uh, it's a bit of a problem uh, knowing what to do with all the publicity recently about blood clotting, so I have uh, gone over in many of my patients to norgestimate, which is still pretty low. This is the uh, ortho tricycline, orthocycline product for those of you who are not quite conversant with it. It's, uh, it's pretty low on the androgenicity scale. The big problem is the levonorgestrel, which is present not only in a number of birth control pills, but it's also present in marina. And we see troubles from marina often, uh, which is really a, 
really a challenge because once somebody's put something in there for five years, they're a little loath to take it out, uh, which creates problems. So let's now move on to the topic of, this, of the talk, uh, acne and milk. So where does all this come from? I have no PhD, I have no bench research credentials. I did do in the past some 23 different clinical trials, including an acne. In fact, uh, Dr. Zeichner was talking about the irritation of, uh, of uh, adapalene this morning, and uh, that was one of the uh, studies that we did probably about 20 years ago now. I have no credentials in endocrinology, pharmacology, or epidemiology. Someone's done the heavy lifting for most of the work I've done. I'm an instigator rather than an investigator. I'm a writer, innovator, thinker, reporter, and the question is, how did I get here talking to you today? I, don't, I still don't know who invited me, but I'll find out. Uh, my father had a patient, my father was a dermatologist, my father had a patient who was having trouble, and we originally, we, way back when, this is like 40 years ago, uh, suspected dairy products as a problem. Uh, I started to send out questionnaires to my patients and actually uh, included uh, a major questionnaire in my intake of patients, and that led to a really strong uh, suspicion that dairy was the problem. So with time, with reading, with the move to the U.S., uh, various things happened in my life, including luck, and uh, one of the things that I, I, I want you to think about is this. You've all seen that optical illusion where you see two faces uh, looking at each other and it's a vase if you look at it the other way and the first time you see it It's maybe the two faces and then you see the vase later or maybe you see the vase later and you see the two people later The funny thing is that when you see what you're seeing you don't see it until you actually see it But when you do see it it lets you see many other things So once you've got the mindset that dairy may be a problem. There's all sorts of things that pop up uh, to support that and I haven't found any that are contrary so how do I get to it? Persistence. Uh, in 2002, Lauren Cordain uh, produced an article in the Archives of Dermatology in which he discussed acne as uh, a disease of Western diet. At the time, we were working with the uh, Harvard School of Public Health putting together a project uh, on exactly that, uh, but Cordain did not look at the fact that his Aboriginal population consumed no dairy whatsoever. He felt the whole thing was due to the low-carb diet that they were using. And uh, so one thing led to another. This is the first paper that came out in JAD in 2005. Uh, I'm not going to read you the whole paper because it was long. But you'll see that the, uh, the p-value for these studies were really very good. We had large numbers of people. We had 47,000 nurses who were the subjects for this, uh, this paper. If you look at the number here, the 1.22, basically that's the risk factor for people drinking more than three glasses of milk a day. If you go down to skim milk, it only took two glasses a day to do it. Now, the interesting thing is that this is in a population of Americans, American nurses who are health conscious, American nurses who live in the U.S. and who have a background of dairy that is basically the highest in the world. So to be able to sort this out with that noise in the, in the database is really, really uh, a tribute to the statisticians and the folks who worked at Harvard School of Public Health. Because I didn't do this. This is when I said they did the heavy lifting, that's for sure. Here are the numbers, the, uh, the risk uh, ratios for bre instant breakfast drink, obviously, milk, sherbet milk, cottage cheese, 
cream cheese. The interesting outlier down here was pizza, which was not significantly associated with acne. We think that is due to the high temperature of the pizza oven, which pretty well denatures the proteinaceous polypeptide uh, hormones that are in cheese. So if you're going to eat cheese, eat really, really hot cheese, uh, and, and you'll probably get away with it. I took that talk to Rome in 2008 and stimulated a couple of other studies that further came along the line. One of them was done in Italy. Uh, this, this is basically the, like the JID, the Journal of Investigative Dermatology, only the Italian version. And they did, uh, I think there were eight different universities who were working on this, and they showed numbers that were even better than we had shown uh, at Harvard. The reason for that? Italy is not a huge dairy-consuming country. Sure, they drink milk and they eat ice cream, but they don't do it in the volumes that we do here in the U.S. So here are the numbers. They're better than our original ones, but it's interesting that if you're eating fish as well, you can neutralize that. And you're all aware of the anti-inflammatory effects of eating fish, so uh, it, it sort of figures. Now, for something entirely different on the other side of the world, this was in Malaysia. Here are their numbers with milk with just once a week, four times. Ice cream, twice. They put nuts in for the first time. That did not show up in our work, but nobody asked, so you don't, if you don't ask, you don't find, so uh, we didn't find. This is the Malaysian study with regard to glycemic load. So it's not just the milk, it's also the glycemic load. These numbers were so high, the, the odds ratio was so high that they went back and they did a binary logistic re regression on all the data and they found that it was, to their surprise, even higher. So the fact of the matter is, um, glycemic load really is important as well as the, uh, the diet. I'm not gonna go through all the, these other ones, but this here is important. What's in milk? There are at least 61 different hormones, growth hormones and uh, steroid sex hormones that are present in dairy. And uh, why? Well, it shouldn't be any surprise because milk is designed to make things grow. It makes babies grow. It makes calves grow. It makes baby whales grow. It uh, makes everything grow. And the reason for that is very simple. Our initial growth is fueled by anabolic steroids. Now, it's not just baseball players and racehorses that get anabolic steroids. Mother's milk contains anabolic steroids. That's what makes babies grow. So what steroids are in milk? Well, there's quite a crop of them. Um, the important ones, though, are the five alpha-reduced ones. You'll see there are five of them in that list. They're in white. Those five alpha-reduced products can turn into five alpha-DHT, or dihydrotestosterone, which is the most potent of all the hormones uh, that uh, are made in the human body as far as androgenic stimulation is concerned. So that really is worth noting. And the, the, there's another important thing about that later, which I'll tell you. Now, this is a terrible slide, and I apologize for it, but I'll just go through it generally. You can take cholesterol, and with one, two, three, four, five enzymes, you can get to dihydrotestosterone, which is this, which is this uh, molecule down here. Testosterone is just one way away from it. So that's what happens in your body uh, when you consume cholesterol. That's how all these hormones are made. The adrenal gland mainly puts out DHEA. The ovary mainly puts out androstenedione. They also put out testosterone, but those are the other ones. And milk is present in this flow as well. So that when you're drinking milk, you are consuming um, progesterone, 
5-alpha-pregnanedione, which is that's the hormone that comes from the ovary at cycle time as well. Then there's also 5-alpha-androstanedione, which is different from 5-alpha-pregnanedione. And the, uh, basically, these are only a couple of enzyme steps away from uh, DHT. The local pilosebaceous enzymes are all present. These are the ones, the five enzymes that move from top left to bottom right are all present in the pilosebaceous unit. And that's why you're able to uh, take these outside hormones and process them and turn them into potent androgens. This paper here uh, was written by Ken Charles uh, Kalman in 1970, and he took uh, biopsies, he stained them, he put autoradiograph auto uh, technique to them and wound up showing little granules of activity here. This is upside down slightly. This is the sebaceous gland up here. This is the hair coming through here. And this here is where the activity of the enzyme uh, that uh, triggers the development of testosterone actually lives. This is his picture that he drew 43 years ago, showing the histochemical picture with testosterone just at the neck of the duct. He showed an increase in cell division, blockage of the ducts, and the development of acne. So what I'm telling you is not new nor original to me. Uh, this is me being a reporter of things long past and unfortunately long forgotten. Fast forward to, uh, 27 years and uh, Dr. Diane Thibetot uh, at Penn, um, at Penn State actually, was uh, instrumental in showing us that 5-alpha um, reductase is present in that area. And uh, subsequently, uh, the, the whole panel of enzymes were demonstrated, and this is the intracrine system that takes the hormones and the, and the preandrogens in milk and turns it into androgens. So, once you get testosterone coming into the system, it goes to the cytoplasmic receptor in a, in a gland, it goes to 5-alpha to reductase, it gets turned into 5-alpha DHT, goes to the nuclear receptor, it's turned into MRA or MR, messenger RNA is produced, then you get metabolic consequences including basically acne. That's, that's the way the whole thing works. The milk-based products do not have to go through alpha reductase, and this is why alpha reductase inhibitors like uh, uh, dutasteride and finasteride are not particularly useful uh, in, in acne. It, we do use them in uh, an acne inversa or hydradenitis suppurativa uh, because we are basically looking at everything that can possibly help and I'll tell you more about that tomorrow. But uh, all of this goes to the nuclear androgen receptor and that's what turns it on and now what, what I want to do is talk to you about the androgen receptor and how do you modulate it and how is it modulated. So four years ago, Bodo Melnick, who works in the Department of Dermatology, Environmental Medicine and Health Theory, which we don't have one of those around our house, but he uh, has done an amazing amount of work in looking into basic science and knitting together information from all through uh, the, the various sciences. And he's come up with a with a, an explanation for how acne is modulated. So FOXO1, uh, the Fox polypeptides are basically, um, they're receptors. And 
if you can look at this, this is called a fork head box. And a fork head box, if it's held apart like that, is inactive. If you take the Fox 1 off it and it goes together, that is what turns on the hormone and the, and the receptor and, what, what, and basically produces whatever it is that that gland or hair or sebaceous gland is producing. So what you want to do in this particular thing, this is the uh, nuclear transcription factor, what you want to do is take that FOXO off and let it close down. And I'm not going to go into this in great depth, but what you want to do is remove that. That's removed by using growth factor and insulin. And growth factor and insulin, as I said, they come from the dairy. They lift off the FOXO1. Uh, they, they actually, what they do is they uh, phosphorylate it it becomes soluble and it moves out of the nucleus. Here it is here concentrating in the nucleus. Here it is, you can see the nucleus is, is almost empty and all the um, FOXO1 has gone out into the periphery. Once that's out, then the androgen receptor is open for business. So that is basically how you turn on acne is get the FOXO1 out of there. It causes hair to grow, it causes keratinocytes to turn over. Uh, it causes sebum to uh, increase tremendously in number. Uh, the sebocytes become massively uh, active and lots of more oil. The FOXO1 activates or represses all the genes that control all this. And this is all in your calendar, so I'm not going to go into it uh, in too great detail. But all the things that you need to make acne are controlled by FOXO1 either as repressor or as activator. All major steps are integrated at the level of what's called uh, phosphoinositide inositol 3 kinase, which you really don't need to know. All you really need to know is dairy causes acne. Causes it by cranking up, by being cranked up by insulin. Insulin is cranked up by either the high glycemic load, that's basically sugary drinks, and uh, fruit juice in excess, that sort of thing, and also by milk ingestion. Just the simple ingestion of milk will crank up your insulin level four times what you would expect just from the fructose, or, so, or sorry, the lactose that's in the milk. So IGF-1 also uh, gets cranked up by uh, milk. The casein fraction in particular cranks up IGF-1. And also IGF-1 naturally goes up at puberty. So we're already seeing um, the growth hormone go up at puberty along this type of curve. Women uh, peak out at 15, guys at about 18, and then they drop back down. By the time a gal is 23, she has the same growth hormone level she had when she was eight, and, uh, which, is, which is sort of interesting. And people say, well, why does acne get better if you've got all these inflammatory things going on, all the dairy things going on? It, it, it gets better because IGF-1 the natural form disappears. But if you keep going with IGF-1 in dairy, then you can have acne right up into your 60s. What's in milk? There's that slide again. It's loaded with things that make babies grow. It's loaded with things that make acne grow. Now, putting it all together, genetic predisposition, you, you do have to have the genes for developing acne. I don't think Paris Hilton could uh, get acne if she ate a quart of ice cream a day. Uh, she's just, some people just have those tiny little perfect pores that don't grow acne. Very lucky. We have two daughters, 
Dr. Margerson and I have two daughters. One, I don't think she has ever had a zip. The other one had to go on Accutane when she was 11. So, uh, you know, it really is quite different. Same set of genes, we promise. Insulin resistance uh, and a high glycemic load diet are produced by this sort of thing. Sorry, insulin resistance with a high glycemic load diet gives you a hyperinsulinemia. And that's an interesting thing. People don't measure insulin very often unless they're looking at metabolic syndrome, syndrome X, that sort of thing. But insulin is responsive to what you eat in a day. You know, everybody does a fasting blood glucose. Well, what does that say? That says that if you're really good and you uh, are careful and you really do a good fast, that you can get your sugar down to a certain level. But if we were to put uh, a little uh, port in your, uh, in your veins and measure your uh, insulin level or your glucose level all day long, and you follow the average teenager around uh, eating junk food and uh, drinking milk, you would find out that that uh, level of both glucose and insulin would be higher than someone who was uh, eating a lean uh, diet. Uh, the same thing with cholesterol. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I am supposed to do my cholesterol, I'm really pretty good about my diet for about a week before I go. Uh, and uh, everybody wants to see their numbers down. And uh, just about everybody cheats by uh, not eating their regular diet before they go to get their test. Uh, it's human nature, but it, it, it sways us. The high glycemic load diet um, promotes gonadal androgen synth synthesis as well as increasing the bioavailability of androgens. That increases sebum production, it increases the infundibular keratinization, and then you're back in trouble. Same thing, this is just, these are just more mechanisms, all added one on top of the other. Uh, hyperinsulinemia gives a reduced sex hormone binding globulin, which of course gives more androgens. You get a decrease in hepatic synthesis of IGF binding, so you get an increase in free IGF-1. This promotes more, it all comes down here. Then you add dairy on top of it all, and you get increase in insulin again, you get an increase in free IGF-1. Dairy on the other side, you crank in the hormones that are in dairy, and you increase the bioavailability of the androgens. All the metabolic pathways lead to testosterone and ultimately to the uh, intracrine system, to DHT. So you put it all together and it looks like, uh, looks like somebody got attack attacked by a bunch of aborigines, there's arrows everywhere. But uh, the important thing is that whey is here in, in milk, casein is here. The FOXO1 uh, elimination happens at this stage here, and as seborrhea is produced and as comatoformation formation occurs, you get the three acnes. And uh, everybody says to me, oh, how, you mean you do this, you do dairy restriction in patients with acne rosacea as well? I do. I haven't got the science to back that one up, and I have to tell you that because this is supposed to be evidence-based. Um, that evidence is held up as a result of uh, a grant unfunding, uh, which happened at Harvard School of Public Health. So we got the data, but we haven't got anybody to check them out yet or check it out yet. So we're down to modulating, or what we've done is modulate the androgen receptor, and then what happens once that receptor is derepressed? Remember, the FOX01 is sitting on top. It's repressing the whole thing. You derepress it, you open it up, and it's open for business. This happens only twice in our lives. The first one is a totally natural derepression of your androgen receptor. And it happens 
at first when you, um, wait a sec, when they're unnaturally forced open. I think there's something missing here. Um, the first time in our life that this happened is when you are a baby. When you're a baby, you're drinking your mother's milk, all that milk influence comes in, it opens up your, your androgen receptors, the androgens in the, in the milk come in and you grow your baby. That is supposed to shut down or at least tune down during your early years at, and supposed to go up again when you reach puberty. And the problem is that when we have natural increase in IGF-1 and then you add all the IGF-1 influences from dairy, you get far too much IGF-1, you totally derepress the androgen receptor, it opens up, the androgens from the milk come in, and then you get acne. So why would it cause hyperinsulinemia? Mother Nature wants the androgen receptor throttle held wide open uh, in the neonatal period so babies grow fast. What could be more natural? It really is a totally natural process that is basically overridden during our teen years by our diet. So what can we do about reducing intake? This is the real problem. How to convince teenagers to give up their favorite foods. This is a tough sell. Uh, as I've gotten older, I find that I can no longer pretend to be friends with most of my <laughs> teenagers because I looked like dad and now I'm looking like grandpa. And uh, it, uh, it's a challenge to, uh, to really develop an eyeball one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, you folks are younger, uh, you're a little bit more hip, you'll probably have a better chance uh, of dealing with the youngsters than I do, but nevertheless, if you sit down, you're comfortable with them, you eyeball them and explain to them, and mom's sitting over in the corner and listening, it really is a, a tremendous sales job to get the folks to do this. So I'm gonna give you some pointers on how to sell this. You can, oh, you can go back, actually, the, the, the www.acnemilk.com is my website, it's non-commercial, uh, we don't sell anything except knowledge and that we give away for free. So basically, go there, the physician guidelines are there, you can print it off as you wish. It's gonna be updated one of these days, it's a little out of date at the moment. So, the big questions are, where is she gonna get her calcium? Everybody knows that you can't get calcium unless you drink milk, especially if you're listening to the milk manufacturers. What about osteoporosis when they get older? What about vitamin D? What about hormone-free and organic milk? And what can they eat instead? What about the calcium? Get your calcium same place cows get it, from the food, but under the control of vitamin D. You don't need milk. There are hundreds of thousands and millions of, pay of kids in North America and the world who never drink milk. They're allergic to milk. They don't like milk or they have uh, lactose intolerance, so they never touch it. They grow up fine. We don't have a whole race of little wee people running around because they didn't drink their milk. It just doesn't happen. Milk is not necessary for human growth. We don't need calcium supplements either. The human beings are the only folks who have calcium salesmen. There's no calcium salesman horses. There's no calcium salesman cows. We do not need calcium supplementation. What we do need is vitamin D. And that's where the problem lies. The vitamin D uh, problem is a, is, a, is a long story, which I'll briefly give you insight into. The Institute of Medicine a couple of years ago met and said that the vitamin D level recommended should be about 800 international units a day for adults and kids. You shouldn't go above 2,000. That was based on all the work that had done, been done to then. This is evidence-based medicine. 
There was no evidence to support anything above that, so the IOM could not put a stamp on a higher dose. Yet, four years ago, there was a meeting in Bethesda of the nine main vitamin D researchers in North America. They sit down once a year at the NIH, basically to have a conference, share their results, divvy up the pie, uh, and plan their next year's work, which is a great idea. Good cooperative research, wide open, helpful. And during the afternoon of one of these sessions four years ago, the uh, representative from Cleveland sat down, wrote down a little piece on this piece of paper, and said, how much do you take, and passed it around. And of those nine experts, the low guy on the totem pole was taking 3,000 a day, top guy was taking 10,000 a day, and the average was 5,000 a day. And these are the experts. These are the folks who believe that vitamin D, and these are the guys who know more than the Institute of Medicine because they are at the forefront of the field. So I tell my patients, eat your vitamin D, don't eat your calcium. There are now papers to show that if you eat calcium with your vitamin D and you're taking a good dose of vitamin D, you're going to get renal stones. You're also going to get calcifications in your brain that you don't want. And you're also maybe getting calcifications in your coronary arteries. All this is new. It won't have hit, it hasn't hit Ladies Home Journal yet, so patients won't be coming in to ask you about it. But those are the facts. And if I had time, I'd back them all up for you. So what about osteoporosis? Here's a good paper out of Harvard. Adequate vitamin D intake is associated with a lower risk of osteoporotic hip factors. Neither milk nor a high calcium diet reduces risk. Okay, you don't need the milk, you don't need the calcium. All you need to do is uh, exercise helps, vitamin D helps, but you don't need milk. So where do you get the vitamin D? The facts are there simply is not enough sometime in our world. Most of us live indoors, most of us keep our clothes on, most of us uh, don't supplement with vitamin D. We tend to overdo it when we do take sun, which is really bad news, either natural or artificial. We are living longer than our skin was really designed to handle, and we really don't need to give any more sun to that skin. Basically, dietary vitamin D is insufficient. Milk is already supplemented, but if you wanted to take 2,000 units of vitamin D per day, you would have to drink two and a half quarts of milk a day. And uh, that would uh, certainly increase your, your BMI to a certain extent. Supplementation is really the only way. So uh, back off the milk, crank up the vitamin D. We're all supplemented supplement with iodine every day. And we should all be supplemented with vitamin D2. Vitamin D3 also, not vitamin D2. Can we use hormone-free milk? There's no such thing. All milk has hormones in it. Uh, all animals have hormones in their milk. People say to me, oh, can I use goat milk or can I use uh, uh, other uh, animal milks? No, you can't. It all has hormones in it. Human milk has hormones in it as well. In fact, it's what maybe makes babies grow. Can you use organic milk? Recently, there's a paper published that show the hormones in organic milk are actually higher than in non-organic cows. So uh, organic milk is probably actually worse. No one's done a study on that, but you can just read the tea leaves and it uh, gives you a pretty good idea of what's going on there. What can he or she eat instead? First of all, it is not necessary to replace dairy. Uh, you say that seven times and uh, click your heels together and go out into the world and try to uh, tell people not to drink milk. It's not necessary to replace dairy. Cow milk was never intended for human consumption, just like human milk was never intended for cow consumption. Okay, 
And I say that to mothers and they sort of look at me. I also tell mothers on occasion, listen, if your son was supposed to be drinking milk at his age, you'd have a closer relationship with him. <laughs> That's when the eyes go rolling to the ceiling. Yeah. So your bodies can get along quite well without it. You really don't need it. So in treating the acne complex, there are two ways to avoid dairy. One is to simply avoid the problem. Go completely natural, stop eating all the dairy, or you can stop the dairy and learn to do other things instead. Uh, these are costly. Uh, any of you who have bought some of the substitutes will realize that the dairy industry, being heavily subsidized, can sell milk a whole lot cheaper than anybody can make the soy or the almond or the coconut or the rice or whatever. It's really expensive. But if you, uh, if you don't want to spend money uh, trying to substitute dairy with something else, uh, then number one, drink water. Uh, number two, there's a go to godairyfree.com. They've got a list of 2,500 dairy-free compounds, foods. Here are some references on uh, diets and books to read. These are all three of them excellent. Beverages are a problem because we really have a sweet tooth when it comes to beverages in this world. We have uh, a pro real problem with fruit juices. Well, natural fruit, if you eat uh, an orange, what you eat is sort of locked up inside the little sacks of orange. Uh, so it takes a little while for them to get uh, into your bloodstream. But if you drink juice that has been all strained and you've got basically sugar and, and orange uh, coloring and water, it's going to get into your bloodstream very quickly. You're going to get a, a glycemic peak. You're going to get an uh, insulinemic peak. And then you're going to get a hypoglycemic drop. And you're going to be hungry again in about, in about two hours. So the, the problem is, basically, if you're going to eat fruit, eat fruit. Don't eat, drink fruit juice. You can drink from a glass. You can drink from a bottle or a mug or a fountain or a camelback. But don't drink from a cow. Okay. Uh, Use fake milk. Actually, this is a fake cow, but it doesn't give fake milk. I don't know who the lady is, but uh, she doesn't have any acne. I don't know. <laughs> In addition to soy milk, there are all sorts of other ones. Uh, they're quite palatable. There's uh, soy ice cream substitutes, cream cheese, uh, all sorts of things out there. Uh, when I suggest hemp milk, uh, for our patients, they, uh, they tend to look at me funny. Uh, I assure the moms that this is THC-free. There's, uh, there's no pot in the hemp milk. So uh, you, should, you, have to, you have to be a little careful with the flavored ones. The high glycemic loads, uh, a lot, many of the ones like the uh, French vanilla and the chocolate uh, are juiced up with high fructose corn syrup. Uh, so you have, and there's about three times as many calories in those ones as there is in the unsweetened versions. So are they safe? What about soy? They got phytoestrogens in them. Well, actually, they do. All plants have phytoestrogens in them. That's what plants use for hormones. So they all have them. They're different levels, but uh, you know, there's just as there's not quite as much phytohormone as in broccoli and peas as there is in soy, but it's there. So to say don't eat phytoestrogens, that wipes all your, dairy, all your uh, vegetables off the map. So it's just, it's, it's a ridiculous claim. So don't worry about that. I have never yet met a woman with night sweats or other menopausal syndrome who could eat mountains of tofu and get rid of it. And that study has actually been done. Uh, the use of um, so-called phytoestrogen supplements instead of estrogen supplements uh, simply doesn't work. 
there is, as always, a placebo effect, but it doesn't work. What I think is curious is this. People are worried about the minimal plant hormones in soy milk, and they're not worried about the proven animal hormones in cow milk. We know more about what goes into baseball players, Olympic athletes, and racehorses in Pennsylvania. They have a whole study on racehorses in Pennsylvania and their hormones than we do about the hormones that go into our kids and our grandchildren every day. I really think that's appalling. There is a solid link between diet and acne. We got diet-induced hyperinsulinemia. You can read it as well as I can. The exogenous androgens, the androgen precursors, growth factors, all acting synergistically. And they really do. Uh, you can't just isolate one and stop it and, and think things are gonna get better. You gotta have all four wheels on the cart. They have to stop the dairy and they have to stop the sugary drinks and they have to uh, look after themselves far better. There's a recent uh, pair of articles which pulls all this together in greater detail. Uh, if you really want something instead of uh, Salmonex to go to sleep at night, uh, there are three, two great articles that I'd like you to read. This, these are open access. Uh, you don't have to pay $51 uh, on PubMed to get them. If you go to PubMed and you look up experimental dermatology and you look up July, you'll find those three articles there. This one here is by Bodo Melnick, how FOXO1 and mTORC1 basically drives acne. And this is another one to show how activation of FOXO1 and inhibition of mTORC1 actually is the mediator for all the anti-acne therapy that uh, Dr. Zeichner talked about this morning. Everything he talked about is discussed and how it works in acne is discussed in this paper. And if you want to read my comments on it, they're there too. So, some of you know who Al Kligman was. He was sort of Mr. Acne until he pa passed away about three years ago. Uh, he wrote a letter to uh, the uh, group I talked to in Rome in 2008 in which he asked us to actually achieve the ultimate goal in medical practice, namely prevention, and that's basically what I'm talking about to you today. Stop all the dairy, push a low glycemic load diet. It's healthy. Both of those things are really healthy. You can rely on spironolactone, uh, sorry, drospirinone or norgestimate in the birth control pills. I'm leaning more towards norgestimate now because of the, not because of the science, but because of the lawyers. Uh, I'm blocking, you block or avoid androgens whenever possible. Spironolactone is very useful for that. And use vitamin D3 twice, a thousand units, twice or four times a day on everybody. So take home messages. Take a look at acnemilk.com. Take a look at Go Dairy Free. Read the Clear Skin Diet. Go see the Paleo Diet. Control the androgens whenever you can. Drospirinone, spironolactone, dutasteride. Use the vitamin D3. And you can get help from these sources here. Now, the one that isn't um, on your, in your handout is the one in white. Uh, somebody interviewed me about a year ago and uh, put together a very nice summary of, of all this in language, in lay language, uh, for the public. And if you uh, go to skincarebydevon.wordpress.com, I'll leave that up here for, the, for a moment or two. In the meantime, keep your eyes and ears open and your antigen receptors closed. Thank you. <laughs>